Welcome to Harajuku Data Lake.、Uh, this is Morris, and after a brief hiatus of weeks, months, who knows, I am back with our,、uh, <laughs> our generous American correspondent, Courtney, who's actually reporting live from Austin, Texas. So we have some、uh, interesting and serious topics to get to today. But before we get there, I just want to ask what is going on in Texas? Because we see like the news is crazy. There's hurricanes. Is it Katrina?、Uh, What is going on in Texas? Well, I live in Austin, which is about two hours uh, due uh, west from Houston. And we had the most we had was torrential rain all weekend, starting Friday evening and going through Monday morning.、Um, there was probably eight or nine inches total where I live.、Uh, a lot of folks experienced flooding here on a minor scale.、Um, and then there was pretty widespread power outage. I think around 12,000 folks lost power in Austin.、Mm. Um, but no deaths. I don't think any serious injuries.、Um, Houston, however,、uh, really extraordinary flooding.、Um, there's been a lot of folks displaced、um, into,、uh, into the Austin area.、Um, so I'm hearing a lot about that.、Uh, I know of at least five deaths in Houston. Wow. Yeah. So it's remarkable the number of folks they managed to evacuate. And I think they did a, a really good job responding. Ahead of time as best they could.、Um, but I'm interested to see what FEMA is going to look like. Because if you remember,、mm. Katrina happened under George W. Bush.、Um, and there was a lot of criticism for late response, inadequate response,、uh, racially motivated lack of response.、Mm. Uh, there was that great、um, remix of Kanye West called George Bush Don't Like Black People. a n d I think this is a situation that's different in that Houston is it's the fourth largest city in the US.、Um, it has a substantial、uh, wealthy white population. There's、mm. a lot of oil money in Houston.、Um, and there's been,、uh, I think, a much a proportionally greater response, but still tragic. I think it's still going to be months in the, the remaking. I think they don't even, they're expecting their floods will hit max level tomorrow or Thursday because there's、wow. still. Still rain the way the, the storm's kind of doing a little loop and coming back and hitting them. That, that's absolutely crazy. It, it's one of these things where、uh, it's really hard to judge from afar how big a crisis is right now because, you、mm-hmm. know, I think、uh, someone is pointing out on Twitter, it's everything on Twitter is like a world ending crisis. Like it's always people being like, you have to learn about this issue. This is totally different. This is, we've never seen anything like this before. It's totally crazy. And so it's often hard to know is this actually a really big thing or is this a、uh, normally big thing? Is this like a, a big catastrophe that we would have every summer or is this like something that's not normal? So it's interesting. And it definitely sounds like this is bigger than normal, but also in the sort of like slow moving way that、uh, hurricanes as disasters work, it's really hard to tell how big it is right now. Um, I think with Katrina, there was definitely some sense of like a breakdown of civil society、uh, and a breakdown of、uh, government services、uh, immediately、mm-hmm. in the aftermath of, the, of it. But even at the time, I think it, that wasn't really, really apparent、uh, until like days or weeks afterwards. Yeah, I actually went to. So Katrina happened when I was a,、uh, finishing my last year of undergrad. 
and uh, some friends and I went down during our spring break to try and you know volunteer. Um, mm. We worked to rehab some houses, and it was astonishing. There was a circle with an X through it, spray painted on every house, and each quadrant of the circle um, had a number or a mark in it that indicated different things that had been figured out about the house. And one of them was how many bodies had been found in each house. Um, Cause there was just so much, um, so much tragic loss from during Katrina and in the aftermath of Katrina. Um, wow. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like in Houston. Houston definitely has a substantial black population. I'm not sure. Knowing the history of New Orleans and how the black folks were living in areas closest to the flood plains and were disproportionately uh, affected, and the areas where they were living have since been disproportionately gentrified. Um, it's sort of the the ongoing long mm-hmm. long reach of Katrina. Um, I'm not sure about similar things happening or not happening in Houston. Um, it doesn't feel like things happening on the same scale mm. as I recall. Um, the storm was downgraded from, it was a category four, I think on Friday night, mm-hmm. category one, uh, Saturday morning, and then downgraded to a tropical storm. Um, oh, so so cate- I think, category one is like the strongest, right? Or uh, wait, other no. way, category okay. four is the <laughs> okay, strongest. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Four, one tropical storm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's not on a, just thinking about the natural forces, not on the same scale. Um, and then hopefully in terms of the tragedy, not on the same scale, though, I guess we'll have to wait and see again, how the infrastructure works out and how that, um, how our government can respond. Yeah. I would definitely say that I think part of the reason, uh, I certainly hope that it's not as bad as Katrina, but I think part of the reason people are looking at it in the context of Katrina was, uh, so Katrina was what, 2004, 2005, Mm-hmm. Um, so that was right around the time when uh, it, it was a big sort of turning point for the Bush presidency. And it's hard not to see that there's sort of a, there, there's definitely an, a kind of want to see Trump, in a sense, fail. Or, or to see this as being like emblematic of him doing a bad job. And so there's there's definitely, uh, I know he's going to, he's... Uh, been reported to visit the area i think today and so i'm sure there's going to be a lot of attention to how he what he says and how he handles that yeah he's actually in austin today oh Um, your your hometown wow exciting yeah yeah i don't know how that's going to work out he's not incredibly popular here but i'm sure they'll round up some of his supporters wow wow well, I, I'm glad to see that the power is on and you seem to be doing okay. Oh, yeah. It's a, actually a beautiful, sunny, there's not a cloud in the sky <laughs> <laughs> day here in, here in Austin. It cleared up yesterday afternoon and it's been, been really lovely since then. Wow. Okay. So the, uh, the official uh, sort of thing that I wanted to talk about today was uh, an interesting situation that happened last week where uh, this company called Fl- Cloudflare decided that they no longer wanted to host a little bit of neo-Nazi content. And the in the specifics of it were that, uh, well, uh, so Cl- Cloud, just to give some context of what Cloudflare is, Cloudflare is a service that you put between your website and the internet. Full disclosure, I am actually a free user of Cloudflare. Uh, the reason I use it is probably the same reason that neo-Nazis or any or other website, <laughs> including 10% of the internet apparently, uses it, is that it's uh, mm-hmm. insanely cheap. 
uh, in my case, for a personal blog, as far as I can tell, it is completely free. And it is completely free to the to the extent that I can host you know gigabytes to terabytes of downloads without paying any money at all. And if I want to pay money, it's like $20 a month for free statistics. So I assume a site that is getting a significant amount of traffic from like Facebook, like some neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, um, would probably be, be paying them some money. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, Cloudflare is just one particular reverse pro- proxying service that people use to reduce their website hosting costs, make their websites uh, faster in multiple regions, add uh, HTTPS really easily to their websites, and um, generally make the entire experience a lot easier. Uh, One of Cloudflare in particular is very, very good at sopping up distributed denial of service attacks, which sort of comes into this story because Cloudflare itself believes it to be an integral part of the internet. Um, so what happened is that Cloudflare is also very well known for hosting lots of different content that might not necessarily be uh, permissible on other services. They do have a strong commitment to being essentially, if it's legal in the U.S., they try to not um, not take it down. Or they simply uh, forward on takedown requests to uh, the end hosts that are behind uh the actual Cloudflare service. Now, what happened here was uh, after the events in Charlottesville uh, a couple of weeks, three weeks ago now, they there was a lot of pl- pressure on Cloudflare to stop hosting this major neo-Nazi website, and eventually the CEO decided that that was the right thing to do and stopped hosting them. And uh, in the process, though, of t- turning off their hosting via Cloudflare, uh, he wrote this blog post, <laughs> which... I'm not even sure if I, I honestly think it probably did more damage than good uh, because it's a very hand wringy like, oh, no, we have kicked them off the Internet and nobody should have this power. Uh, so the, the blog post itself, uh, we'll link to it, is called Why We Terminated Daily Stormer. And uh, he, he basically w- he says that he woke up and he was in a bad mood. And so that's why he did it. And he has no particular argument for it, which actually suggests to me that his actual argument is that he shouldn't have done it. So, uh, so, so basically how, <laughs> so, so the reason I'm so, I was so riled up about this last week when I proposed this as a topic is that it came up on one of my favorite podcasts, which was uh, Exponent. And I thought that they had a bad opinion of it. Uh, I thought they were overly concerned with the so-called free speech rights of the Daily Stormer and their ability to be hosted cheaply and freely online. And essentially my uh, my opinion there is that uh, Cloudflare is one of literally thousands of uh, hosting providers that do the exact same thing. And that the idea that getting kicked off Cloudflare is tantamount to getting kicked off the internet is basically... Um, uh, startup CEOs believing that they are the center of the world and are more important to infrastructure than they actually are. There seems to be a little bit of hubris in that statement, doesn't there? If we can't host them, they can't be on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and let me tell you, there are, I, I think, <laughs> I, I would be slightly more uh, sympathetic to the argument if it was a literal, I, literal ISP, like a phone company refusing to provide service. But in this mm-hmm. case, I see it as, it's like, 
This is a company that makes it very, very easy to host a website at scale and scale it out to millions and millions of viewers at minimal cost. And, you know, I understand that the government probably shouldn't be cracking down on the free speech rights on, on people's free speech rights very w- without some serious consideration, but <laughs> we also don't have to run the printing, printing press, right? Like, you know, if you want distribu- to distribute your Nazi hate literature, like, don't don't come to my printing company and ask me to print your pamphlets. It's okay for you to refuse refuse to to print the pamphlets for hate speech and whatnot. And I think it's a similar situation here. Well, I think we're living in a world where we're relying on corporations more and more to provide kind of moral guidance. Frighteningly, um, I'm thinking about as we left the Paris Accord, uh, and a lot of the major corporations that are U.S. based said it's okay. We'll still follow the guidelines because due to you know globalization and the transnational nature of these corporations, they still do business in many of the countries that are actually uh, following the guidelines of the Paris Accord. Um, so they're providing kind of that environmental thrust that in the 90s we thought, you know, corporations, they're awful, they're the ones killing the planet, now they're the ones doing the more of the heavy lifting because our actual you know, federal government is acting more like a corporation. This is actually a very weird place to be in, I have to say, because I, I think we're in this this space where corporations, where, where giant corporations are trying to be progressive and forward-thinking and cool. And <laughs> it's not that they're totally succeeding at it because they can never be purely cool, but they're getting a lot closer to closer to culture and closer to being cool and closer to the cutting edge than I'm really particularly comfortable with. Like, you know, it's it's great that a lot of these corporations are relatively progressive in their politics, but at the same time, it definitely feels, it's a weird place to be. I think that's a really great point, Morris, that um, I think morality and aesthetic are so profoundly interwoven. And what we think of as being cool, what we think of as being decent, what we think of as being right, what we think of as being just good as like a blanket term, those are all really about an aesthetic, um, kind of what we um, what we take in as making us either feel comfortable or uncomfortable, as giving us pleasure or making us feel a sense of displeasure or, or discomfort. And I think corporations, part of their job, like part of what marketing is, is sort of chasing that aesthetic and chasing the generation of that feeling. Um, like what will make people feel this inherent pleasure, this inherent sense of um, adding value to their lives when they purchase our product or engage with our product. Um, and if there's this huge open field right now that um, we're living in a world where good and evil seem very clear cut and looming and threatening. Uh, I think corporations are shrewdly, especially, uh, you know, groups like Google that, you know, their slogan forever has been what don't be evil. Right. Right. I I think it's not officially their slogan. It it was officially for a while. Um, I don't think anymore. I think you're right. I think they've moved on. (laughs) They're less concerned (laughs) with that now. Um, but uh, there was an article in Nylon recently about um, the alt-right um, sending out emails ahead of the Ch- uh, Charlottesville uh, rally saying, hey, you guys don't dress like slubs, like wear polo shirts, wear t-shirts that fit well, wear pants yeah. with belts. <laughs> dress like a Trump supporter with it. Yeah. 
yeah with a white polo shirt and these weird khaki pants yeah because they were like if you know if you look if y'all look like uh crazy hillbillies essentially was the undertone hillbilly being a derogatory term for Mm -hmm. white working class folks then fewer people will want to join up but if we all look cool and hip in our white polo shirts then it'll be more appealing to youth so even uh Mm. these folks who've been traditionally pretty unsophisticated are starting to understand kind of how to market their campaign yeah yeah it's uh it is a very, very weird time. Uh, okay, so backing up to corporations and coolness and social progressivism. This Okay, so this is actually, and, and I think this is actually a little bit, to bring this all the way back to Cloudflare, I think in a way this idea that corporations control and influence culture is what gets liberals like me very, very worried when corporations start to have opinions about free speech uh, even if it is the free speech of people whose opinions we find vile. And um, sort of where I'm at is that I think that's a very important point, and corporations definitely do have a very big impact on our culture. But ultimately, I guess what I find frustrating is it seems like as liberals, we spend so much time worrying about the free speech rights of neo-Nazis and the ability of neo-Nazis to leverage internet platforms at scale that at some point we just become completely unable to effectively filter out hate speech from the communities that we build. And this, I think, comes bring, comes into the other topic that I wanted to talk about a little bit, which is uh, the role of Facebook and Twitter in that I think both Facebook uh, and especially Twitter have been criticized very heavily for allowing lots and lots of hate speech and allowing uh, the Gamergate movement, the uh, alt-right movement, the neo-Nazi movement to flourish. President Trump to have a Twitter account? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, They've been heavily criticized for this, but at the same time, even years in, essentially they haven't been able to figure out how to keep people from abusing their platforms. Now, Facebook has definitely taken a slightly heavier hand and they have the benefit of their sort of one founding founding insight from the mid... Well, and this, this is actually, this is a founding insight that comes from the 90s because in the 90s, a lot of us believed that what was causing trolls and what was causing abuse and what was causing... Um, Uh, people to be nasty online was anonymity. And so the Facebook innovation of requiring real names comes out of that late 90s idea that if we forced people to put their real names on something, we could solve a lot of the difficult cultural problems problems of the internet because suddenly we, as a service provider, we would no longer have to determine what is when somebody's being reasonable or not, because as soon as people have their real names on it, they'll essentially start to be reasonable. And I think that that has actually worked a little bit in Facebook's case. Um, But on Twitter, it hasn't worked at all. And at the end of the day, um, all the links to the Daily Stormer come from Facebook. So real names have not saved us 20 years in. Yeah, I'm also on Facebook. Um, there's a few things going on. Uh, one, the the way that you can filter out circles, like you can have uh, a group of friends with which you share your most vile, racist, inhumane thoughts, and that your grandmother will never see those. Um, mm. Theoretically, hopefully, if unless there's some sort of glitch. Two, um, 
the fact that real names are required doesn't mean that real names are always being utilized. Um, and there actually mm. was some pushback in the other direction from folks who are non-gender binary or drag queens oh, yeah. who have other names that they utilize in their lives um, and wanting to use those on their Facebook accounts. So the sort of the many layers of what constitutes your actual self or your actual identity, Facebook trying mm. to <laughs> slimline that didn't work out <laughs> necessarily so well. And then uh, their guidelines, didn't you send me an article on how um, under their guidelines, like um, black women aren't a protected category, but like white children are? <laughs> Uh, I, I think this was a controversy uh, around last year, I believe, where uh, I think it was somebody leaked some gar- some uh, guidelines from Facebook on how to determine what was inappropriate speech. And I do actually have a little bit of sympathy for Facebook there because they are actually... And, and I, I think they're actually, in a sense, they're trying to do the right thing there, which is that they are actually trying to cut down on hate speech. And... The fact that they are trying is a little bit of a start, I would say. I would say Twitter, <laughs> on the other hand, like Twitter doesn't even need a guidebook because none of it's hate speech on Twitter. Like, um, but uh, but yeah, it was definitely in that specific in those guidelines. There were definitely guidelines that I thought were not were. I mean, the, the reason it was an article and the reason it was a mini scandal was because it definitely appeared that things that I would see as extremely offensive and hate speech and things that I would never want on my uh, Facebook uh, were not actually categorized that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. They are attempting, but their, their paradigms are really bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And, and, ult- and ultimately I think, you know, it's, I think Facebook is really operating at this very, very basic, sim- very simplistic level where they're trying to, they, they they have very blunt and simple tools and they are playing with culture in ways so that, for example, uh, last year, they tried to get um, neo-Nazi uh, junk out of their news section. And the way they did it was actually a pretty reasonable way, which is they hired a bunch of uh, real people and journalists to decide what was appropriate for the news section and what wasn't. And what ended up happening was that there was a claim that these people had a liberal bias and all these people were fired in the face of an algorithm. And now the story that people know about that entire incident is that Facebook is somebody who censors uh, conservative viewpoints. And so it's sort of like there is a incident and then there's a story and then there's a meta story and then there's the ultimate lesson that people learn from this in their culture which might be propagated by the very fake news websites that facebook was originally trying to get rid of and then it's like there are so many different after effects happening here that facebook mm-hmm. is you know it, i i in a way i'm i applaud them for attempting to at least start to think about the simplistic uh, nature of online communities, like however many years in, but I think they're they're completely not adept at doing what they need to be doing. Yeah, and it um, it's kind of the impossible problem, right? Because it's just mm. reproducing human the human communities that are already existing in the U.S. and um, everywhere in the universe at this point. Um, and the human communities are complicated and messy mm. and 
angry and hateful in a lot of situations. Um, Facebook is a very strange slice of human life that gets reproduced mm. and uh, following that old uh, like anarcho hacker uh, idiom that information longs to be free, the kind of the weird elements propagate themselves mm. to enormous uh, size and shape and other things seem to kind of fall away or don't exist. Yeah, I definitely one of the most more interesting things I heard about the sort of cultural influence of the internet is this idea that the internet just makes everything more intense and everything faster and everything bigger. So in a sense, that's what's happening kind of on Facebook is that all these different cultural interactions are all happening, except they're all happening many, many, many thousands of times faster than they used to be happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. You used to only hear your uncle's racist comments on Thanksgiving and Christmas, and now you can hear them every morning when you go look at his Facebook page or it shows up on his <laughs> Facebook feed. Yeah, well, and what sca- uh, uh, ultimately what scares me about Facebook is I, I think I see my friends of a certain age becoming much more conservative than I would have ever expected them to be. Should we take a minute and just break down what we mean by conservative and liberal? I think that might be useful because I think for some folks, the idea of, uh, well, you know, in the U.S., it's a two-party system. There's the Democrats, uh, which have um, for a good hundred years been the left party, and then the Republicans, which have been, uh, which are the party on the right. That hasn't necessarily always been the case. The famous example is that Abraham Lincoln was actually a Republican. Those the mm. kind of allegiances and lines have shifted a little bit. But for contemporary purposes, the Democrats are the left and the Republicans are the right. Um, and the kind of foundations of their beliefs that categorize them one way or another is that uh, folks on the left generally support having a larger uh, state with a larger infrastructure to support uh, a variety of folks. So there's a basically a larger uh, social welfare net. There's um, mm. healthcare, there's housing services, um, all these sorts of things that keeps folks from slipping through the cracks and starving to death or becoming homeless or mm. uh, falling prey to addiction, these sorts of things. Um, and the ideology on the right is much more about uh, individual accomplishment and the idea that we should have a small government, we shouldn't give much money to the government, um, folks should kind of take care of themselves and just work hard and accomplish what they need to accomplish. Um, and also there shouldn't be much regulation of business because, again, if you're working hard, whatever you earn, you should be able to keep hmm. Um which are much more classically American um, ideologies, to be honest. Um hmm. And the kind of way that uh, those rhetorics have developed over the course of the 20th century, um, the left was heavily involved with and s- supported by and supportive of the labor movement in the early part of the 20th mm. century. Um, in Canada, that's how they got uh, single-payer national health care. All the labor unions worked together and said, we are all striking until there's national health care, not I'm going to work for my union to get health care, mm. you work for your union to get health care. Uh, and in the U.S., the labor movement was a huge, huge movement, um, far larger than, for instance, the civil rights movement, um, but oh, one that's really? not really discussed any longer. Yeah, I would say that uh, when I teach a class, I tell my students that um, out of their four grandparents, probably one of the four had some involvement or knew someone involved with or had some connection to the labor movement um, or great grandparents, wow. depending on the age of the student. Um, but it's a story that's not really told 
in the U.S. because we sort of see it as something that was victorious. We got a 40-day work week. We got weekends. Mm. Um, but it's really largely been slowly disintegrated um, since the 1970s, since the beginning of globalization and outsourcing. And many of these good uh, unionized jobs that were in manufacturing, especially, have been moved to places that are heavily deregulated, like the right prefers. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, are no longer, yeah, they're no longer, those sorts of jobs in the U.S. are no longer uh, union if they exist at all. Um, And we have the rise of the sharing economy of folks doing things like working for Instacart or Uber or Lyft, uh, which are um, sort of individual contracts that you have with your employer, but that don't really give you health care or any of the the attendant benefits that the labor movement worked toward. You can work an 80 hour mm. week if you want, it's your choice, uh, but you don't have any protection <laughs> for working that many hours. So anyway, the left is very much traditionally historically and theoretically now been in support of putting these protections in place for individuals Mm. um the right um in the u.s has been about this you know the story of individualism but the part of the right that isn't really discussed and that's a really inherent part of its history is how race operates in the right um and Mm. the way that race operates in the right is that these white working class folks were told you don't need protections you don't need the government just work hard because the people in charge are people that look like you and will take mm. care of you. Um, and this was used again and again as a divisive tactic to keep folks from forming labor unions in the U.S. White folks were told that their whiteness had some sort of value that would be diminished if they allied with black folks. Well, and uh, it's it's quite believable that that could happen, that 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 um, uh that having that being white has it would have a value for laborers yeah well yeah it was structured in such a way yeah that if you were white you would have access to more jobs to um better pay to better places to live all these things uh if you read uh tanahashi Coates's amazing essay in the atlantic which is free online called the case for reparations mm-hmm. uh, it's a history of how in the u.s um the way that um housing districting was um sort of labeled was if black folks lived in an area it had a worse grade and housing was cheaper which is a way to just perpetuate hmm. segregation and perpetuate um the value of white folks houses and black folks couldn't legally uh didn't legally have um the same means of accessing mortgages as white folks until the fair housing act mm. in the 1940s uh, but essentially the the kind of delineation i'm trying to describe here is that um the ideology of the right is foundationally based on the idea that whiteness has value and whiteness needs to be protected, which is why there's a connection between folks that are more middle of the road Republicans who wouldn't necessarily see themselves as racist. And these folks that are all the way over on the alt-right Nazis who are directly um, explicitly saying anti-Semitic, anti-black, um, pro-white things all the time Mm. um they're all kind of part of the same history and the same ideology um part of why those folks on the far right or alt-right seem distasteful is they're just saying it out loud which you're kind of not supposed to do uh so yeah yeah, well and this is actually what what i also see that seems very as somebody who grew up in the 90s in a you know a, a very white community in indiana it was very clear uh, growing up that racism was bad and that nobody wanted to be labeled a racist. So people 
spent a lot of time attempting, despite the fact that they did not know very many races of people and probably interacted almost entirely in uh, primarily white social circles, they made a very conscious effort to not appear to be racist. And what I see changing, and you, you definitely see it in their alt-right right, um, movement, and you also see it, I think, in, uh, you know, uh, your elderly relatives posts on Facebook, and you also see it uh, in uh, Fox News media. Is this I is that now? It's no longer. Um, it's no longer as <laughs> many many people. I see many people much more willing to say explicitly explicitly racist things in public with their real names attached to it than I ever saw in the nineties. Yeah, the the aesthetic of what's socially acceptable is shifting, right? The aesthetic is now it is slightly more acceptable to be racist in well, the and, and what what's completely perverse about it is that often when people say things that are explicitly racist, they say them as though they are rebelling against a liberal orthodoxy, as though it is it's the liberal orthodoxy that's trying to keep them down and they are like the rebels who are willing to say what's really true which is that you know i'm not pc and i'm going to say this crazy shit and i that just it just pisses me off so much because it's like okay we we had this drag okay i just have to say i'm not going to say her name but we had this american drag queen who's been on rupaul's drag race come to uh japan last weekend and she's uh an asian american person uh she's of japanese descent and she did this show and like her show in Japan, it's basically because she's famous because of RuPaul's Drag Race, like most of the people at the show are um, Americans who know RuPaul's Drag Race really well. So it's it's a show in Japan, but at least half the audience, if not more, is American. And, you know, she did a couple of numbers, but between them, she attempted to do a comedy set. And her entire comedy set was like this... It was Asian racial stereotypes, one after another after another, and they were they were Asian racial stereotypes that you you would never even hear in Asia, because they come from like the mid they they're the type of Asian stereotypes you hear in the Midwest if you don't actually know Asian people, and it it was so bizarre to have an Asian American person coming to Japan to do a so called comedy show that's all like speaking truth to power by whipping out like asian race racist stereotypes that i heard mostly in like the 90s and 2000s in the midwest and then oh and then the crazy thing is at the very end of her act she's like you know she tries to present herself as though she is a cultural crusader who is like leading the lgbt movement and being visible and being out there and like you know pushing progressive causes and i'm like you just did like an entire like comedy routine that would not be out of place in 1976 in some bar in Oklahoma. Like this is not what progress means. Anyway, sorry, that's a totally tangential rant, but I think it does tie into this I this like this modern like racist ideology that it's racism as rebellion against um an oppressive progressivism. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think a lot of that, uh, uh, A, that whole story is so strange and hilarious. And I wish I could have heard that set. How did people respond? Were people laughing or were they just kind of looking at her? Like, did, did the jokes well, even I, land? I mean, the, the, 
it, it's a small club. She's a famous person in a really small club that you've seen on TV. Like, so obviously everyone's like completely full of energy and it doesn't really matter what she says. She's going to get a laugh line. Um, uh, I think one of her, her jokes was like, how crazy is it that Donald Trump is president? And everyone's like, whoa. And it's like, okay, that yeah. wasn't actually a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a statement of fact. Yes. Oh. My yeah. flight was 14 hours. Can you believe it? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, th- <laughs> this idea that there's a liberal orthodoxy and that folks are moving against it. I think this is, um, there was actually a book published in the early 2000s that the New York Times reviewed right after Trump got elected. I will... I will send you a link and you can put the link. Okay, to it I would love the, to look at that. The notes. Yeah, where he was warning, he was warning the left uh, about um, multiculturalism and this this idea that we're moving forward uh, and supporting all of these minoritized groups that are traditionally underrepresented, especially in universities, African Americans, uh, Latina, Latino uh, Americans. Um, sort of all the folks that traditionally haven't had as much access to college or as many economic opportunities, which is a real, that's a real history of the U S. Um, but he's saying you guys are supporting the advancement of all these groups, but you're leaving the white working class behind and we need to find a way to integrate them and support them or there's going to be a backlash and that backlash Mm. will be racially motivated because to them, this looks very racialized and it looks like Mm. a kind of, um, what folks often call reverse racism, even though I think that's a total misnomer. Um, <laughs> and that's exactly what's happening. These The working class white population in the U.S. feels very left behind, like no one has cared about or advanced their um, their agenda. And they have been screwed. Globalization has screwed them. They've been screwed by the people that look like them. They've been screwed by people like Donald Trump, who would rather save money by exporting labor, exporting... Um, all the sort of cheap things that used to be able to get in the U S from unionized groups. Um, and now they're just sort of left in the lurch, especially as we have increasingly shrinking social net, you know, there are fewer welfare, welfare services for these folks. Um, and so the backlash is coming here. It is. And it's very racially motivated and it comes in the form of this hate speech. And it is totally a product of us not thinking of us. When I say us, I mean, um uh, certainly the intellectually oh, the intellectual elite um the folks the you know the left really mm. um making sure that we're taking care of everyone not just uh focusing on these minoritized groups that we got really obsessed with in the 90s yeah it's um i i think building on that i also want you know given uh the way wealth has been distributed and given the given how much wealth has accumulated among the extremely rich over the past 20 years, I also definitely see that that it's no longer just a working class rebellion. It's, I also see that rebellion among professional people with college degrees who also feel like they, who also feel left behind in a sense. Yes, maybe they make it, maybe they make a hundred thousand dollars a year, but they still feel like they could be getting more. Or that, you know, they're working hard, but, you know, these other people are getting by just because, you know, because of the color of their skin. Yeah. Yeah. This ridiculous backlash against affirmative action. And it, um, 
There's a part in this Julie Serrano essay that can I read a little bit of oh, it? Oh, yeah, please. So the essay is titled Refusing to Tolerate Intolerance. And well, anyway, yeah, yes, please. Uh, please. Uh, I'd love to have you read something. Yeah. Yeah. Julia Serrano is an amazing. Uh, she's a trans activist. She wrote an uh, incredible book called Whipping Girl. And then this is an essay of hers in Medium, which I'm sure Morris will link to. And he sent me this ahead of our discussion to look at. Um, and here's just a paragraph toward the end of it. Um, so starting now. Most free speech absolutists have a huge blind spot that they stubbornly refuse to acknowledge. They have generally lived lives where virtually everything that they think or say falls within the realm of tolerated discourse. Perhaps a few of their opinions or word choices are considered by some to be, quote, unsavory, end quote, or, quote, edgy, end quote, but none of it dooms them to the status of abomination or pariah. So they are unable to see constitutive intolerance, the fact that some people and ideas, such as trans identities and perspectives several decades ago, have been excluded from a discourse a priori. Then when the status quo eventually shifts and things that people could previously freely say, such as making transphobic remarks, are suddenly met with protest, mm. it feels like an attack on free speech to them. And they imagine themselves as the good guys defending free speech against the bad guys, i.e. people using their free speech to protest transphobic remarks. When in reality, all of us are doing the exact same thing, making personal choices and pronouncements regarding what we are willing or unwilling to tolerate in an attempt to slightly nudge the world in our preferred direction. Mm. That's the end of the of that paragraph. But I feel like that really ties into what we have just been talking about, that um, the discourse has shifted over the past 20 or 30 years in the U.S. And it's not... I want to clarify, too, it's not that just the intellectual elite or the the white left is shifting these. Lots of folks in these minoritized groups have been pr profoundly brilliant and incredible activists and done incredible labor, given their lives to um, mm. working to make the world more just and more equitable uh, for everyone, um, not just even for themselves, but for everyone. And... Um, their work is part of why things have shifted. Um, hmm. But I think the, f the fallout of this segment of especially white working class folks, but a lot of white folks in general feeling excluded from the left or not cared for is definitely the responsibility of the uh, left writ large, like the democratic party uh, and the intellectual elite that generates some of these ideas. Um, yeah. And I, I think last time we also briefly talked about or I briefly talked about this in the context of uh, LGBT stuff in that, you know, I think the way I phrased it is that, you know, everybody has a rough time in middle school and that includes LGBT people. But uh, even if you are not LGBT, it's quite likely that you, you had a pretty shitty middle school experience and your experience is real. And mm -hmm giving rights to LGBT people who also have shitty experiences or may have shittier experiences. You know, it's not a, not a contest, um, but giving rights to LGBT people to be who they are does not take away from the fact that everybody has a personal story. Yeah. And that's why some of the most incredible activism has been for um, folks fighting for universal healthcare, not just healthcare yes. for, you know, a small group or, uh, folks working for um, colorblind college admissions, like mm. across the board um, or, you know, affirmative action. That's what the, the Coates essay, The Case for Reparations, really is mm -hmm. about how much of the wealth in the United States has come on the backs of um, black folks who have not received any compensation for it and, in fact, have had things actively stolen from them. 
their families, their freedom, uh, their income over and over and over again, over multiple generations. Wow. So, yeah, but so this idea that um, folks are feeling attacked in a way that maybe weren't before where there's been, you know, there's pushback. You can, Now you can't say that that's racist. Well, they're like, well, now I'll say it anyway. I'm a crusader for free speech. Uh, <laughs> Serrano does a really beautiful job drawing a distinction between, like, are we really talking about free speech or are we talking about tolerance and intolerance? Because if we're talking about tolerance and intolerance, we really need to um, kind of sharpen up and look at what's happening here. And I think mm. that actually connects to your your middle school analogy, Morris, because it's it's true everyone has a shitty time in middle school, but proportionally, who kills themselves in middle school? Yeah. Trans folks, uh, yeah. queer folks of color, trans folks of yep. color. Um, it's these people that are already uh, in these double or triple binds um, that have multiple directions of um, kind of structural structural injustice happening uh, that feel especially born down upon and have fewer economic and life opportunities later on. Um, and I think that yeah. just acknowledging that everyone struggles is key and will make people feel heard. Um, but also being mindful of the, the lived experience and the realities of those. Uh, Cause people can say, well, my life sucks too. And I'm like, yes, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Your life could be a lot better, but um, just approaching all of it with a sense of empathy, not a competition, not whose life sucks more, but how can we make everyone's life suck less? Yes. I th- yes. I think is a much more productive, uh, and to me, that's in my heart of hearts. That's what I want the left's ideology to be. How can we make everything suck less for everyone? Um, versus, right. How I mean, can we make? Yeah. I, like I, I feel like at the end of the day, I'm I'm a humanist, right? Like, or I mean, as Sergio put it, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, we we aren't engineers. We we are people first and engineers second, and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a competition. It, 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 yes, it's it's about people. Yeah, about and even just thinking about it, uh, thinking like an ecologist, it's people, it's the planet, it's the animals, it's uh, mm. kind of life on Earth and how it functions. Uh, if you kind of try to think about things holistically, certainly some things are always better for some folks than others. Some groups are always getting screwed. But if you try to approach things with that viewpoint, your viewpoint is radically different. I mean, that, it's a little tautological, but I know some folks will hear that and just kind of laugh and say, you know, oh, you're just a hippie tree hugger. <laughs> but I remember um, during Occupy Wall Street, I remember reading this. Uh, it was something on like Tumblr, this blog post where this guy was like, I, do you remember there was like a backlash where folks were like, I'm part of the 56%. I don't remember exactly what the the 56% was. Um, I think it might have just been like 56% of folks are in the um, the middle class in the U.S. Um might have been the kind of ideology behind that. And I might even mm. have that number incorrect. But anyway, this guy was saying, look, I have uh, I have a wife and a young kid. I work 60 hours a week between three jobs. Um, I pay for my truck. I pay for my house. Uh, I take care of myself. I'm strong and it's really hard, but I get through it. And all of you 99 percenters need to shut up and stop whining uh, and just, you know, just work and figure it out for yourselves. Uh, and someone commented and they were just like, you know what? That's great. I'm glad you can work that hard. Mm. But what if you didn't have to? What if you could just work 30 or 40 hours a week and take care of your family and yeah. didn't have to do all of that? And what if you got injured? What if you lost a hand at one of your jobs and yeah. things were still okay and you weren't, you know, you're you could still afford a place to live for your family and still have food for them? 
Um, and that for me is, that just really struck me as kind of a foundational difference. What if you didn't have to work that hard? What if you didn't have to worry about it? What if we just lived in the richest country on earth and everyone had enough food to eat, which would be, you know, that's completely a possibility. We didn't have to rely on the Mm. infrastructure of private corporations donating food to food banks so that some people could access food who can't afford it. Um, well, uh, I do want to kind of, this is, this is a big topic. Uh, so, uh, anyway, I think the moral of the story is that Paris Hilton's dogs live in a two-story doggy mansion that has air conditioning, (laughs) heating, designer furniture, and a chandelier. Loves it. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have, uh, strong opinions about these topics. So, uh, if you do, uh, subscribe, share the episode and don't add us on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have Facebook. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, no. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you so much for listening so far. Uh, did you want to cover like a few quick, like random topics afterwards or? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Okay. So, uh, the the two random topics that I have are I actually wrote two blog posts uh, over the uh, past couple of weeks and these are like you know I feel like I haven't I hadn't updated my blog at all for the first part of the year mostly focusing on uh, audio content aka this podcast and then I just had a desperate need to blog so the two blogs that I have one are about uh, Raspberry Pi as probably more than half of my blogs are so I did what. I, I think a, a Raspberry Pi is this, what you see in a Raspberry Pi depends on your perspective. So some people see the Raspberry Pi and they think, oh, this is a computer that fits in my pocket. And some people see it and say, oh, if I want to like prototype a cell phone, I can use this. And some people see it and they say, oh, this is going to be like the hub for all my IoT devices. And some people see it and they're like, oh, this is like my home media server. And what I see it. I'm like, oh my God, it's a little tiny computer that's powered by USB. This is going to be my always-on Linux server. So basically every single one of my Raspberry Pi blog posts is about turning it into a little Linux server. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, what, what I did most recently was I turned it into a little Linux server and I backed up my computer to it using a really awesome piece of software called Restic. Um so that was fun, and I learned a little bit about how uh, encrypted file systems work on Linux today, which was also uh, interesting to me. Uh, the second blog post is probably a little bit more interesting, which is that uh, last Friday, actually, the internet was somewhat down in Japan. So what happened, uh, the way I noticed this, I was actually at work, and uh, uh, at my company, we access many different websites and uh API endpoints and whatnot, and we noticed a bunch of things going down, and we started investigating, and it was like, oh my god, like, is this, is this, have we made a mistake and suddenly our system is going down? What is Mm -hmm. this? Uh, But what we quickly realized was that, no, it wasn't our, it wasn't us, it was that these sites were actually legitimately down. So a few, like, uh, online brokerage firms went down, Uh, Suica, which is this, uh, uh, train pass turned mobile payment system. So like, you know, I have an iPhone seven and it has, uh, Apple pay and as Apple pay, it has, uh, uh, you can buy things via Suica, which is integrated with Apple. It's, it's very confusing, but for whatever mm-hmm. reason to charge this little card inside my phone, uh, you have to use an app that was down for like six hours on Friday. Um, and it was interesting because, once you realize that these sites are down and they're inaccessible, there's pretty much nothing you can do. You just like, you have to wait for them to come back up. And usually 
it, it's something I, I'd never actually experienced an internet outage like this probably ever as far as I can remember. Uh, so uh, the root cause of what happened was that uh, the internet is actually a bunch of different networks composed of basically different telecom carriers, and they use a routing protocol called BGP to exchange route information between these local carrier networks. So, uh, for example, I'm connected to like SoftBank, and SoftBank's probably connected to like the NTTs and the AT&Ts of the world, and then they tell each other who has which IP addresses using BGP. And each one of these has an uh, AS number, an autonomous system number. And Google, since they're like, they aren't actually an ISP, well, they are in some parts of the US, but they're not so much an ISP, but they're a major uh, provider of data. They have their own AS number. And what happened was at about noon on Friday, they advertised some routes to IP addresses that they didn't actually own. Uh, there's there's a full write-up, um, a technical write-up online now. But mm-hmm. the impact of it was that um, even though they corrected whatever they say they say they corrected whatever issues they had within eight minutes um one of the back it affected one of the backbone networks in japan for about 20 some minutes and then sort of after after effects of that lasted for maybe five or six hours so it was uh it was weird and it made me think about how fragile the internet is in some ways and how how much uh, you never expect the internet to go down, but how completely possible it is for the internet to go down. Yeah, I remember when it would go down all the time in the 90s, like just because it was, I think there was a lot less overlap in terms of the networks mm. and just like chunks of it would you couldn't access or certain websites would go down and it would just sort of, like, there was a much greater expectation of like sometimes things just don't work. Um, but in this day and age, it's where we've become so profoundly reliant on it that it's like, you're know, like, mm. I can't take the train home. Like, can I yeah. get cash somewhere so I can get on the train? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like literally. So I have my, you know, this Suica card is also my train pass. And mm-hmm. if my iPhone is not charged, I can't use my train pass. And it's like, oh, well, and I have to use this app to charge uh, additional money on this thing. So it's very, it's, it's very robust and it almost never goes down. But it is in some ways very, very fragile. So that was a, that was a thinking time. Um, so I watched Wonder Woman on Friday night. It was a terrible movie, and uh, then was very frustrated that's, and read a blog. That's post. a whole topic for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe we were talking about corporations, and I, I, I think it's yeah. it's a fascinating topic. But we do uh, we should cut this off. But uh, yeah, thank you so much, Courtney, and uh, yeah. it's great to be back, and it's great to talk to you. And I'm so glad that you are not underwater in Austin. <laughs> Thanks, Morris. Me too. I'm all likewise very glad about that. Any uh, any final message for listeners, or where can people find you online? Oh, um, they kind of can't right now. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm working on retooling my website, so maybe next time I'll have a link. Um, but in the interim, yeah, thanks for listening, and Morris, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely. All right. Bye bye. You can say bye too. <laughs> bye <laughs> okay. yeah or feel free in this instance and throughout to edit however much of that out as you need to uh, or none of it none of it is yeah. okay too yeah <laughs>